Welcome to Manna for Breakfast, the daily Bible reading devotional which chronologically takes you through the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation in one year. Grab a cup of coffee and your Bible and join us as we journey together through God's Word. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. It is Wednesday here, so we are enjoying our beautiful hot mornings here in the summertime. I'm going to come down. It's 86 degrees right now, 9 o'clock in the morning here in Puerto Vallarta. (laughs) 86 degrees. Oh, gone are those glorious mornings when it was down in the 60s. But um, lovely weather, no clouds. What can you say? So today, we're just going to go right into um, the dad jokes, my This Day in History. It's working today like it should. I have an issue with my, my browser. But special one flown in from Canada. Uh, thank you, Hank. <laughs> Perfect joke for a pastor, for sure. Here it is. All right. Today's morning joke. Dad joke. On Sunday morning, the pastor noticed little Alex standing in the foyer of the church, staring up at a large plaque. It was covered with names and and small American flags mounted on either side of it. The six-year-old had been staring at the plaque for some time, so the pastor walked up, stood beside the little boy, and said quietly, Good morning, Alex. Good morning, pastor. What is it? said the little boy. The pastor replied, Well, son, it's a memorial to all the young men and women who died in the service. Soberly, they just stood there together, together staring at the plaque. Finally, little Alex, bravely, audibly, and trembling with fear, asked, Which service, Pastor? The 8 o'clock or the 1030? <laughs> I kind of saw that one coming. But, yeah, there you go. Some people feel that way. So let us move on today. We are going to be looking into Proverbs 10 through 12. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to read your word every single day. May you feed us, God, nourish our spirits, give us the understanding that we so long for, and the wisdom that comes with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Studying the wisdom literature, this is good stuff. Contrast of the righteous and the wicked. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. Ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger, but he will reject the craving of the wicked. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. The wise of heart will receive commands, but the babbling fool will be ruined. He who walks in integrity walks securely. He who perverts his ways will be found out. He who winks the eye causes trouble, and a babbling fool will be ruined. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers 
all transgressions. On the lips of the discerning wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. Wise men store up knowledge, but with the mouth of the foolish, ruin is at hand. A rich man's wealth is his fortress, but the ruin of the poor is their poverty. The wages of the righteous is life, but income of the wicked, punishment. He is on the path of life, heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. He who conceals hatred has lying lips, and he who spreads slander is a fool. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who retains his lips is wise. The tongue of the righteous is as choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of understanding. It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. Doing wickedness is like sport to a fool. So is the wisdom to a man of understanding. What the wicked fears will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one to those who send him. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. The hope of the righteous is gladness, but the expectation of the wicked perishes. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the upright, but ruin to the workers of iniquity. The righteous will never be shaken, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. The mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom, but the perverted tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous bring forth what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverted. Well, not a whole lot to add there because it's so many, so many sayings there and they're so separate, but they're all based on obviously righteousness and wickedness. The righteous have the blessing of God, the wicked do not. I, I did notice it was interesting. It says even the wealth of the wicked will cause their punishment. I think down around verse 7 or 8 or something um, will be their punishment or their, or their demise or something like that. And it, we do see that the unrighteous, the wicked, when they have money, it also is a pit to them. It is what destroys them. They have so much of it, they just party it all away, and they get addicted, and they get they drink themselves or do drugs and overdose and die. And yet they had all the advantages of what money can bring. You know, the lifestyle, the ha- which should be the, the happiness through all of the things they can pursue plus the doctors to keep them well, all these things. It, it doesn't profit. Uh, un, yeah, and then, of course, yeah, the, the unjust gain, if that was the phrase, I'm not sure, is not profitable. It, you, you will, in, in the end, it will bite you. And most of us have known people this has happened to. Cheat on your taxes, steal money to go start to go get something you want, um, just basically dishonestly run your business and st- and rip off people, uh, it inevitably will come back upon you. And there are people that some of us know they're in prison today because it was ill-gotten gain. I think it's the way they were phrase it and can cause so many issues. So moving on now, chapter 11, contrast the upright and the wicked. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. 
When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright will guide them. But the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. But righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way. But the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them but the treacherous will be caught by their own greed. When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of the strong man perishes. The righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place. With his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there is joyful shouting. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is torn down. He who displeases his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding keeps silent. He who goes about as a tale-bearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals the matter. Where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there is victory. He who is a guarantor of a stranger will surely suffer for it, but he who hates being a guarantor is secure. A gracious woman attains honor, and a ruthless man attains riches. A merciful man does himself good, but a cruel man does himself harm. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but he who shows righteousness gets a true reward. He who is steadfast in righteousness will attain life, and he who pursues evil will bring about his own death. The perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk are his delight. Assuredly, an evil man will not go unpunished, but the descendants of the righteous will be delivered. As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters well himself be watered. He who withholds gain, the people will curse him. But blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. He who diligently seeks good seeks favor, but he who seeks evil, evil will come to him. And he who trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. He who troubles his own house will inherit wind, and the foolish will be servant to the wise-hearted. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. But if the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner, I think, rewarded for their sinfulness, I should say judged. I think there's the, the, the gist there. I, I think is, is, I was reading this thinking, wouldn't it be amazing if we had leaders, presidents, that thought like this, really, truly thought like this, could really follow the, the wisdom that's written here. Chapter 12, Contrast the Upright and the Wicked. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates reproof is stupid. A good man will obtain favor from the Lord, but he will condemn a man who devises evil. A man will not be established by wickedness, 
But the root of the righteous will be moved. An excellent wife is a crown to her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness to his bones. The thoughts of the righteous are just, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright will deliver them. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. A man will be praised according to his insight, but one of perverse mind will be despised. Better is he who is lightly esteemed and has a servant than he who honors himself and lacks bread. A righteous man has regard for the life of his animal, but even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. But he who tills the land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. A wicked man desires the booty of evil men, but the root of righteousness yields fruit. An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous will escape from trouble. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his words, and the deeds of a man's hands will return to him. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. He who speaks truth tells what is right, but a false witness deceit. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But those who deal faithfully are his delight. A prudent man conceals knowledge. The heart of fools proclaims folly. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. The righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. A lazy man does not roast his prey, for the precious possession of a man is diligence. In the way of the righteous is life, and in the pathway there is no death. So my consensus in these Proverbs is that they are principles. They obviously do not work in every case, every time. We know that lying lips, you know, will not prevail is the principle. But we have people that have been lying for years, seemingly, and getting away with it, especially in the political realm. But the principle is certainly they're not getting away with it with God. And certainly God is looking at this in a much broader perspective than we do. And we don't know all the nuances in the way that God can bring about a lot of judgment upon these people within their own life. The people that are lying, that have money, that have gained ill-gotten gain, uh, are probably suffering in many ways we don't even know about when they're off camera and such. But the, the principle is, generally speaking, these things are true. There are spiritual warfare is going on. There are enemy attacks. Um, we do know in the end days, we are living in the days of Noah when everything that is good is thought bad and everything bad good. So it seems to be Satan wants to flip the Proverbs and say, you know what? I'm flipping these principles. Everybody that's evil and bad and pursuing dishonest gain, they're going to prevail over you righteous. And it would seem that God allows these things for a certain period of time than to bring about his overall plan. But the principle's certainly there. 
And most of us know that. Most of us know that um, any one of us, we decide to follow the principles of, you know, being hateful to your neighbor, not being kind, ripping people off, ill-gotten gain, um, lying lips, not, not being prudent in holding back information. All of these things comes back on us. It hurts us. And it also destroys the communion we have with God because all of this is to help us in our communion and our walk with God. So the principles are there. And this is why the Bible is so phenomenal and why we read it every morning, why it is our manna, our bread, because we take it in and we understand that God is continually refining us and saying, hey, how you doing on your honesty? It's not just about going to church and saying, I believe in Jesus. It affects every part of your life. Are we being upright? Are we seeking wisdom? Are we seeking the right kind of knowledge? Are we just looking on how to get rich? And we don't care if we step on a few toes or cheat on taxes. And God says, we read these things, he says, hmm, not going to bless that. It's not going to get you ahead. What's going to get you ahead is working hard and being prudent and diligent and faithful and honest uh, and kind, and all of these things. And we know that he says throughout the Proverbs that wisdom is better than gold and silver. So the riches that God wants to pour on us is not always financial. Some of the happiest people I know don't have a lot of money. And it's been my blessing to have ex-millionaires tell me that they're happier now than they were when they had all the money because now they're not distracted and they're all their focus on the Lord and, and God has become so real and rich in, in their life that the money it was n- has not the issue in their life right now. It's just being accepted in the presence of the Lord. What a phenomenal thing to hear and a thing we need to keep reinforcing with ourselves all the time. We are now looking into Acts, which is, of course, most of you know this. Acts is written right after the church period. It is the Gospels is, is the life ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts, then, is the birth of the church. It picks up where Jesus leaves off, where he says, I'm going to leave you a comforter. Well, we see it in chapter 2. I'm, I, I'm going to ascend to my Father, and you now take up the work that I t- showed you to do to share the Gospel. So Acts is foundational to the church. We all need to know Acts because this is who we are. We are the church. This is about the church, how it was born, how it came into being, and how it functions. And we are introduced to a very important person named Saul of Tarsus in this book. Acts chapter 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea 
in Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Verse 9, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all were with one mind and were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture has been fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus for he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of the wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. It became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field is called Hadekalma, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who would accompany us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy the ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Interesting thing that Peter does here, that as soon as Jesus is taken up, he does what seems to be the right thing. says, oh, okay, he chose us twelve, we're supposed to be twelve apostles to run the church. Represents the church, it made sense because there was 12 tribes of Israel and a number of governance, governance and all these, the, the above. So he says, we got to choose somebody. But <laughs> what's interesting to me is rather than saying, Lord Jesus, we know that you're still around. We can't see you, even though you've gone up to heaven, you promised that you would, you would be around. Of course, they're, they're sensing that since he's gone up to heaven, he can't really speak to them. This is something new. It's all new. So they go back to the Old Testament method of discerning God's favor by casting lots, which God seems to honor, but it would be my supposition that that would be the time where they'd say, hey guys, let's all gather around. We all know Jesus. We all know he's the Lord. We've now seen him resurrected. We've seen him in his glorified body. We know he knows. He listens. We know that he can hear us when we're not, when he's not here. <laughs> Thomas, remember? So let's ask him, Lord Jesus, what should we do? This was something that they were going to develop into. Right now, they cast lots. Made sense to them. I'd like to know where they got the lots. It seemed to be something that the priest was supposed to have. 
you know, in his breastplate. Well, that was the Urim and Thummim, but they, I, apparently that lots were something, I guess you could make yourself. I don't know. I don't know anything about how that happened, but the Lord does seem to honor it. And this brings up the big debate. Should they have ever chose Matthias? Because the real apostle, the 12th apostle that's going to come into, come on the scene is going to be Paul after he's converted from being Saul. And he obviously is the that the apostle he's chosen directly by Jesus. Jesus is the one who chooses Paul. <laughs> comes, we could say, comes down out of heaven and says, Paul, you're my guy, you're the 12th apostle. So what's with this choosing? And how could it be God's will if they, he really had plans to choose Paul? Were, were the lots not of God? Well, it's one possibility, but it does say, the Bible says that the lots fell on Matthias as if they were pretty sure it was God. So when I look at this and I, I was, tried to figure this out before, but then I thought, hey, wait a minute. You know, Jacob took Joseph's two sons and said, these two are one, they're mine. And so when you look at Israel and they're being numbered through the Old Testament, when you stop and, and look at it carefully, technically speaking, there were 13 tribes. And they were always counted as 12 because the two sons of Joseph would be counted as one or when Dan was discluded, as in the, we'll see in the book of Revelation, not numbered amongst the foundation stones, they, they, then both sons are used. So it, it's, it's just a technical thing. It's a goofy thing that we who love to dive into the Bible and study these things go, wow, that's amazing. There's a harmony even here with what happened in the 12 tribes. There's something very similar with the 12 apostles. And so it works. I mean, God's plan always works. He never doesn't contradict himself. There were 12 apostles. But technically, there were 13, but there were only 12. And that all, all depends on who God was using at that time. Right after Judas, he uses Matthias. Paul comes along, now it's Paul. So anyway, I want to meet Matthias. Probably a really cool guy. Didn't get a lot of press. Didn't get a lot said about him, but he must have been a really, really righteous guy. I mean, I really love the Lord. Quiet servant. All right, moving on. Charles Spurgeon, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people, 1 Samuel 12, 22. God's choice of his people is the reason for his abiding by them and not forsaking them. He chose them for his love and he loves them for his choice. His own good pleasure is the source of their election and his election is the reason for the continuance of his pleasure in them. It would dishonor his great name for him to forsake them, since it should either show that he made an error in his choice or that he was fickle in his love. God's love has this glory, that it never changes, and this glory will never tarnish. By all the memories of the Lord's former loving kindness, let us rest assured that he will not forsake us. He who has gone so far as to make us his people will not undo the creation of his grace. He has not wrought such wonders for us that he might leave us after all. His son Jesus has died for us, and we may be sure that he has not died in vain. Can he forsake those for whom he shed his blood? Because he has hitherto taken pleasure in choosing and in saving us. It will be his pleasure still to bless us. The Lord Jesus is no changeable lover. Having loved his own, he loves them to the end. Don't you wish you could write like Charles Spurgeon? Maybe it's just me, but the man has a way of stating things so elegantly yet so precisely and then always giving you encouragement. I mean, the encouragement, God will never stop loving you. 
will never leave you. The man who shed his blood for you, do you think he's ever going to pull away from you? Even though we may pull away from him, his love is constant. It's never changing. And like a true parent, even if the son or daughter goes off into sin and rebellion, they will always love them and maybe hurt deeply by them and mourn over them and cry for them and pray for them daily. And sometimes, you know, those kids can treat their parents horribly, but their parents will always love them. So this is the idea. This is the, the blessing we have in knowing the Savior and knowing that he paid the price for us to love us. He chose to love us. And his love is something that we, we can never underestimate or something we should never stop appreciating and celebrating. So with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious day, the blessing that we have in it, God. And we just thank you that you go before us, God, that we can rest in your love. And even though some of us may stray at times, or we feel unworthy to be loved, you love us nevertheless. So we celebrate that. We thank you for it. We want to ask you, God, that your love be spread out to the people around us, the people in our families that really do not understand that kind of love. People around us and friends that have seen us be transformed by your love and yet become hostile to it. They become upset that we've changed and sometimes they don't even want to talk about it or talk to us. And they, they, they don't like it when we talk about God's love for them. It's somehow too convicting or they can't believe it. It's too wonderful. So they're always doubting and challenging. God, just touch them supernaturally. We know that people are hurting inside. And they often react the strongest when we talk about your forgiveness and your love because they believe it's too good to be true. And they don't believe they're worthy. And deep down inside, they know they're sinful. So our prayer, God, is that you use us in these days to help them see that and to be gentle, not to be argumentative, patient. I need that, Lord. I, I need that probably more than anybody because I don't like it when people are unkind and when they say very hurtful things about you and about Christianity and about Christians uh, and so, Father, just give us a lot of wisdom. God, we pray we need, we need wisdom on how to walk in these days and help us all to stay truthful and honest and kind and to seek your kingdom first and to work diligently, God, and not to go after ill-gotten gain, not to look for the quick buck, not to cheat, but to keep us steady, God. Even when it seems like it's, we're going to lose, we know somehow you'll make it work out. We all need this, God, and we need to encourage each other in it. So thank you for this morning, and help us, God, to continue on in just righteousness and faithfulness to you. And those that are hurting, God, those that, that need touch physically, emotionally, please, God, hear their cries this morning. Hear them as they cry out to you and touch them. Still praying for the skooks, God, that they get their daughter back that they can work this situation out with the state, that, that the truth obviously would come out, but, God, it would be to the favor and the benefit of Mark and Karen to receive their daughter back. And so thank you, God. We ask for a special blessing there for all this to be worked out. And for Hank and all the others that are going through a tough time with their treatments and needing a lot of, of physical intervention, God, I mean, it's free from you. We just pray you would touch, touch their bodies, heal their bodies. Anyone who has pain, 
that is consist that is chronic, God help them find the right treatment. We know in this world, God is a fallen world, and you don't choose to heal supernaturally all the time. So we just ask God, you show us wh- how we can deal with the thorn in the flesh. We we know your grace is sufficient. Just show us how to walk in that grace and 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 be a great testimony for you in the pain that we deal with. So thank you, God. Continue to praise you in all that you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen. And please don't forget today we have service, 630, going through 2 Kings. We'll be in chapter 10 tonight. So if you can join us, we'd love to have you. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.